So very good to see you this morning. I, I love the fact that no matter what is going on in the world, we can be together and worship and praise God and to focus our hearts and our minds on what we have in Christ Jesus. I am so incredibly thankful for Jesus and I'm so incredibly thankful for his people And that idea of God's people doesn't stop at these walls. And so when I think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our neighbors for that matter, all over the world, especially right now in Ukraine and in Russia and in Eastern Europe, you probably, many of you feel exactly the same as I do. I'm just kind of overwhelmed right now. And I've had a hard time this week thinking about anything else. It's just kind of consumed my thoughts to think about the fear and the pain and the struggle of our brothers and sisters as they flee and as they hide. And I've had to remind myself throughout this week and especially this morning that although this situation right now is unique and it's pressing and it's everywhere and it's sort of consuming our thoughts, it's, it's not unique in the grand scheme of things. Every, every Sunday morning that God's people have gathered together since the time of Jesus. Our brothers and sisters in Christ have been in peril, in danger, in crisis. Every Sunday, whether we know it or not, whether we recognize it or not, whether we think about it or not, whether it's televised or not, we have brothers and sisters every single week who are fleeing and hiding, who are oppressed and persecuted, who are in crisis, in turmoil, in peril, and, and, and even right here in this room, you have your own battles and your own crisis and your own peril and your own turmoil and everything you're going through is just as scary and just as tumultuous, just as painful as anything anyone else is going through. And that's why, that's why this, this subject about the hope that we have in Christ is so important. That word hope is so important. Hope is the ability to hold crisis in one hand and joy in the other hand. The ability to to look at soberly whatever it is that you're going through. To be able to look at a crisis soberly, not to dismiss it or to deny it, not to stick our head in the sand and pretend like it isn't real, but to look soberly at whatever crisis you are currently facing and continue to persevere with joy because you know how the story ends. This is what our world needs. Our world today and tomorrow and next month and next year and a hundred years from now and a hundred years ago, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in our life, that's what our world needs. Our world needs the hope that Jesus brings. The confidence, the joy of knowing this is how the story ends. And this is the message, this is the joy, this is the confidence, this is the hope that you and I have to share with the world. And if we don't, who will? That's what this series this month has been all about. It's just share Jesus with your neighbors. Talk about 
Jesus with your family. Talk about Jesus with your coworkers. Talk about Jesus with your classmates. Enjoy talking about Jesus. We all have things that we like to talk about, probably, don't we? We all have something that we like to talk about. Most of the things that I like to talk about are pretty trivial, honestly. I, I, I really like talking about Marvel superhero movies. I really like talking about Star Wars. Any given day, you can find one of those subjects going on at our house. I like to talk about good food. Chances are you have a whole long list of things you like to talk about, right? Politics. Sports, the Super Bowl halftime show, something, right? You, you have things that you enjoy talking about. If somebody gets you started, you're going to go for 15 or 20 minutes without even thinking about it because you just like talking about that. The only question we're asking this month in this series, is Jesus at the top of that list? Is Jesus on your list of things that you love to talk about? If somebody gets you talking about Jesus, you just can't hardly stop. Not Jesus as an idea, not Jesus as a concept, but Jesus as a person, the person of Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth. You just love him so much that you can't help but talk about him. Now, I want to be clear about some of the things we're not talking about. Okay, we're, we're not talking about arguing, okay? Sometimes when we talk about evangelism, and I've tried really hard not to even use that word this month, but when we talk about being evangelistic or sharing Jesus, sometimes what people think we mean by that is arguing with them, trying to convince them they're wrong. I, I'm not encouraging all of us to go out and to be arguers for Jesus, We've got enough of those. I'm not encouraging you that that's what we all need to do. Just go argue with your neighbors, convince them they're wrong about everything. And I'm not even talking about tactics and strategies and programs to convince people to get baptized. We've had a lot of that over the years probably. Try to manipulate people or, or convince people or twist somebody's arm to, to get into the baptistry. That's, that's not what we're talking about. And we're not talking about being culture warriors. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, I would say that I'm not even trying to, to convince you that you need to be a, a philosopher I'm not trying to convince you that you need to be a scholar. I'm not even trying to convince you that you need to be a teacher. James says, not many of you should, should presume to be teachers. I'm not even trying to convince everybody that they should be a teacher. What I'm simply saying is this, just be a friend who is passionate about Jesus. Just be a friend who's passionate about Jesus. Just be as passionate or more so about Jesus than you are the other things that you're so passionate about. Just be a friend who, who can't stop talking about Jesus. And, and that may look different in your life than it does in other people's life. Maybe for you that means writing songs about Jesus. Maybe for you that looks like painting a picture about Jesus. Maybe for you that looks like having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a friend about Jesus. Maybe that, that looks like you writing a note to someone. Maybe that looks like you inviting someone to worship or inviting somebody to a group Bible study. It may look different to different people, but just be a friend who's passionate about Jesus. 
You don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't even have to be a teacher. But we do have to be a friend to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our classmates. And we should be passionate about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how Jesus has changed us and the hope and the joy and the confidence that we have because of Jesus. We certainly need that and our neighbors certainly need that. You don't have to argue with everybody. You don't have to twist people's arms. You don't even have to be a teacher. Just be a friend and be passionate about what Jesus is doing for you and has done for you. Are we, are we looking to be that kind of people? Are you looking to be that kind of person who is passionate and enthusiastic about talking about Jesus? Are you praying for and looking for opportunities to be that sort of person with your family, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your classmates, with your friends. All we're saying is just don't be quiet about Jesus. Just, just don't keep him a secret. Just don't keep him to yourself. Your friends need to hear about Jesus. We need to boldly and passionately Talk about his name. Speak his name. Now, we talked about last week. We were in Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to be again this morning in Acts chapter 4. And the, the first century church is beginning to experience resistance. They're, they're beginning to experience the, the Jewish religious leaders, specifically in this case, the Sadducees and the, those that control the temple complex, the, the priestly group, are telling them enough. No more talking about Jesus. We don't like this story that you're sharing. We don't like the people that are believing it. We don't, we don't want you talking anymore about Jesus. And they threaten them with violence. They didn't do any violence to them yet, but they threatened them with violence. And they said, if you talk any more about this Jesus, we are going to hurt you. So stop talking about him. Now, for some of us, it doesn't even take a threat before we stop talking about Jesus. We talk about that. But, but what if somebody threatened you? What if you were afraid that if I talk about Jesus bad things might happen to me. I might lose my job. I might lose connections. I might get thrown in prison. I might be hurt. I might even be killed if I continue to talk about Jesus. What would you do? What would be your first reaction to a threat like that? What would be our collective reaction to a threat like that? Many of us look at the future and we're afraid that sort of thing is coming in the United States. I don't know whether it is or not, but some of us look to the future and we say, oh, that very well might happen here. And we know that it's happening around the world right now, so it is possible, certainly, that even in our lifetimes, there may be a point in time where talking about Jesus could cost you your job, could cost you your freedom, could cost you your life, what would we do if we were threatened with that? What would you do? What would be your response? What would be your reaction to somebody threatening you? You keep running your mouth about this Jesus guy and you're going to be in trouble. 
How would we react to that? Let's look at how the first century church reacted to that. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Let's kind of stop right there. This is their reaction. This is their response. Their response isn't to to go out in the streets and tell everybody how horrible and bad the Sanhedrin is. It's not just to go and start reviling the the priesthood or the Sadducees. It's not even to to grab arms, to grab weapons and say, we're going to have to defend ourselves against these evildoers. It's not to go out and seize political power and say, we better take over before they destroy us. That wasn't their reaction at all. Their reaction was to get on their knees and pray. To come together and pray. And they start their prayer this way. They they start their prayer, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. The one who is in charge of everything because he made everything. Sovereign Lord who made everything. Now, that's a really good question right there, isn't it? That's a really good place for us to start. When we're nervous about sharing the good news about Jesus with others, when we're nervous about what the future may hold, when we're nervous about what the consequences for us might be in following Jesus, that's a really good place for us to start. When we pray, do we really believe this truth that the Lord is sovereign? I think somebody said, yes, amen, we do. I hope we do. Do we believe that? Do we believe that he's in charge of everything and that nothing gets past him? He sees everything and knows everything and hears everything and will judge everything. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is fine and dandy. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is is nice and comfortable and easy and even good. It doesn't mean that people don't do horrible things. But it means at the end of the day, my God is in charge. He is sovereign over all things and he made all things. So if I'm threatened or if I'm worried or if I'm anxious or I don't know what the future holds, I need to get on my knees and talk to the one who is sovereign over everything. This is their reaction. This is their response. When they're threatened with violence, when they're threatened and told, stop running your mouth about Jesus, they immediately go to God in prayer. Is that our first response? Is that our first reaction? Look at verse 25. God, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... Then they quote Psalm chapter 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now go, go read this afternoon, right, not right now, but go read this afternoon Psalm chapter 2. Because this is the psalm that the first century church held on to and said, this anointed one? The Lord's anointed that that David talked about, 
so many hundreds of years ago? It's Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed one. And the question is, why do the nations and the rulers conspire against him and plot against him? And that's exactly what was going on in the first century world, wasn't it? The rulers of the people, both the Gentiles and the Jewish rulers, all the rulers and the powers and the authorities were all conspiring and plotting against Yahweh and his anointed one. They were conspiring against God and his people. But notice, notice what it says. It says that their plotting is in vain, right? It's, it's pointless. All of their raging and all of their conspiring and all of their plotting, it is in vain. It will come to nothing. And that was true in the days of David that no one and nothing could stand against the Lord's plans. And that was true in the first century. And church, it's true today. There are still rulers and powers and authorities who plot against and rage against and conspire against God and his anointed one and his people. But all of their plotting and all of their raging and all of their conspiring is in vain. Psalm 2 says, verses 4 through 6, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The psalmist says, David says, that God laughs. He laughs at their plotting and their conspiring and their raging. All of it's for nothing. It's going to come to nothing. See, that's the kind of confidence the first century church prayed with. All of this plotting and all of this conspiring and all of this threatening and all of this violence, it will come to nothing. Jesus is here to stay. The kingdom of heaven is here to stay. The kingdoms of this earth are passing away. The kingdoms of this earth, and no matter how big they are and strong they are and powerful they are, they will come to nothing. The Lord laughs at all of their plans. The Lord scoffs at all of their conspiracies and their plotting and their raging. It will come to nothing. It is in vain. Isn't that amazing? That when the first century church is threatened with violence, stop talking about Jesus or we're going to hurt you. They say, do what you want. Say what you want. Plan what you want. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus. And all of your threats and all of your violence and all of your raging and all of your conspiring, it will come to nothing. Because God has set his anointed one on his holy hill. The anointed one of God, the Messiah, Jesus, he reigns and he's king, he's in charge and you're not. No matter how big you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter how many soldiers you have, no matter how many spears you have, no matter how many swords you have and horses you have and chariots you have, your plans will come to nothing. Our God is in charge. And church, that's the kind of confidence that we need to pray with that we need to live with, that we need to talk with every day of our lives, knowing that, yes, yes, God and his people have plenty of people who conspire against them, but God is sovereign. God is in charge. 
and all of their plotting is in vain. Verse 27, for truly in this city, continuing the prayer, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, get get this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? I mean, they say there are plenty of rulers and powers and authorities who have conspired to do evil, but whatever it is that they've done in crucifying your anointed one, it was only what you planned to happen in the first place. Why? Because the Lord God is sovereign. And all of their plotting and all of their evil, all the forces of wickedness and darkness and evil conspired against Jesus and Jesus won. All of it was part of God's plan in the first place. He's still in charge. They haven't pulled anything over on God. God is winning. Not just in spite of their efforts, but even through their efforts, God is turning the evil back on itself. And all of their plotting and all of their raging and all of their conspiring, God planned it for good. And he brought about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus through their evil. Verse 29, and now Lord, here's their request, and now Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Three things, right? Three things. First, look upon their threats. Now, notice it just kind of stops there. Look upon their threats. Just, Lord, you hear them, don't you? You hear what they're saying. You hear their violence, you hear their conspiracy, you hear their plotting, you hear their raging, you hear their threats. Just take note of it. Do what you will. We entrust that to you. He he doesn't even say stop their threats, prevent their threats from coming true. He just says, listen to it, take note of it, recognize it, hear it, and we trust you to do with it as you will. Are we willing to trust God that way? God, you see see the evil in the world. You see the plotting in the world. You see the violence in the world. You see what evil people have conspired to do. Take note of it. Listen to it. And we trust you with it. To do with it as you will. But then, here's what they really ask. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I don't know about you, but the first thing that would probably be on my mind to ask is protection, right? Safety. Like, don't let them hurt us. And I think that's a fine thing to pray for, but that's not what was at the top of their request list. It wasn't just protect us, It wasn't just provide for us. It wasn't just give us safety. It was grant that we may keep speaking your word with boldness. Don't let us keep this to ourselves. Give us boldness, confidence, passion to keep sharing your message. 
Is that the kind of thing that we would pray for in the face of threats? In fact, more pressing, in the absence of threats. I don't know about you, but I haven't been threatened lately, and I talk about Jesus a lot. I haven't been threatened that if you don't stop running your mouth about Jesus, we're going to hurt you. I haven't faced that. And probably you haven't directly been threatened that way either. So in the absence of threats, do we pray for boldness? Would we pray for it in the face of threats? Do we pray for it in the absence of threats? Is that at the top of our list of things to pray for? Give me boldness. Lord Jesus, give me boldness to keep sharing your good news with my neighbors. Father God, I am, I am so weak and I am so timid and I am so afraid and I'm nervous to bring this up because there might be some social consequences for me. Give me boldness. Give me boldness to keep speaking your word. And then continuing the request, while you stretch out your hand to heal. Isn't that amazing? That in the, in the face of violent opposition, in the face of violent threats, they don't pray for destruction. Lord, bring down thunder upon these Sadducees. Bring down thunder upon the temple and the priesthood. Bring healing. Bring signs and wonders. Heal people. Are these the kinds of things for which we're praying? Is this what we would pray in their shoes? Is this what we pray in our shoes? Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed, Father, listen to their threats and grant that we may speak the word with boldness and continue to stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders. And then when they finished their prayer, the house where they were was shaken. And church, you may not feel this building being shaken. I, I guarantee you probably won't. But the same God who shook that place is in you. Amen? The same God, the same Holy Spirit who shook that house is in you. The same God who answered that prayer and filled them with the Holy Spirit and gave them the boldness to speak about Jesus in the face of violent threats, that same Holy Spirit is in you. Is in you. Do we believe that? Do we believe that he is sovereign? Do we believe that he made all things and is in charge of all things? Do we believe that nothing gets past him? Do we believe that he sees all things and knows all things and hears all things? Do we really believe that we know how the story ends? And do we believe that the same God who shook that place is shaking us and is empowering us and is filling us with his Holy Spirit? Do we believe that? And if we do, is it reflected in our prayers? How often? How often do you pray for the ability and the opportunity to talk about Jesus? How often do you pray for the ability 
and the opportunity to talk about Jesus? Do we, do we really believe that the same God who filled them with his Holy Spirit continues to fill you with his Holy Spirit? Do we believe that even though the, the Spirit of God empowers and equips us differently, that he continues to empower and equip us? Do we believe that he really hears us and that he really answers us, that prayer continues to be powerful and effective and that things change based on God's people's prayers? Do we believe that? Do we believe that God shakes things up based on the prayers of his people? If we do, we'd probably pray a lot more often and we pray with a whole lot more passion and confidence. How often do we pray for God to change us? Give me boldness. Give me passion. Do we believe that, that he can and that he will? Yes, I know you get nervous to talk about Jesus. I get nervous to talk about Jesus. I know you get nervous to bring up matters of faith and spirituality and religion in everyday conversation. That's a scary thing to do. Are you praying about it? For the ability to do that well? Again, I'm not saying you need to be a philosopher. I'm not saying you need to be a scholar. I'm not even saying you need to be a teacher. But are you praying for the, the ability, the boldness to bring up Jesus to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers? Do you pray for the opportunity to talk about Jesus? Do we believe that the sovereign God of the universe changes things based on our prayers? Do we believe that he opens doors of opportunity and he opens hearts and he opens minds when we have the audacity and the confidence to pray for it? I hope that we do. I hope that we believe all of the things that the early church believed and that we are willing to pray often for the ability and the opportunity to talk about Jesus. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to begin your life of discipleship by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins or you want the church to pray with you and pray for you and you believe that the prayers of God's people are powerful and effective if so, if there's anything we can do for you, now's a great opportunity to respond as together we stand and sing this song.